Well, good morning. Thank you. Thank you, Mario. Thank you, Pastor Steve and Ken, for allowing me to come back. It's good to, good to see all of you. Um, if you've had a good week this week, uh, that's a good thing. You got through what a British psychologist many years ago called the gloomiest, saddest week of the year. Um, he called it uh, the third, third Monday in January, Blue Monday. And it doesn't, it doesn't take a psychologist to figure out why this time of year is maybe a little bit hard for people um, to, to get through. You know, all of the holiday celebrations have ended, all of those special feasts are done, you're back to your routine, uh, maybe you put on a few pounds now you need to get rid of, uh, all those credit card bills from all the shopping is probably hitting, hitting you. Um, the next holiday season is a whole year away, right? And for many, uh, Maybe New Year resolutions have been hard to, to keep up with. Uh, maybe some goals are being, uh, you're failing at the goals. And it brings a sense of failure just few days into the start of a new year that you were hoping is going to be a wonderful year. Um, but no matter what you feel about the new year or goal setting or, 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 or you know, making resolutions, uh, in the epistle to the Philippians, Paul gives us a two-word challenge that we're going to look at today for how to go after the most important goal of the Christian life. So Michael is going to read for us. If you don't mind, Michael, read the text for this morning. It's taken from Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to pick up in verse 10, and then we're going to read all the way through to chapter 4, verse 1. Coming like him in his death, that by means, by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead, straining toward the goal. Not that I have already obtained it or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, who are mature think this way. And if I in anything you and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers Join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, and even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even subjects thing, all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Thank you. Join with me in prayer. Father God, we thank you once again for this time. Lord, your word is true. We pray as we... Uh, 
take a look into your word and what you have to say to us this morning from this text that you would speak into our lives. Lord, help, help these truths to uh, transform our thinking, our life, our ministry, and how we live out our faith. Lord, give me the right words and pray that we'll be able to focus our attention on what you have to say in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to quickly set context, since we are jumping into the text here in Philippians chapter 3, as you know, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, which was the first church in Europe that he had planted. And he had planted the church almost 10 years before he wrote, wrote this epistle. And Philippians, as most of you know, is called the epistle of joy. But it was not written in the most uh, joyful of circumstances, right? Paul is writing while he's imprisoned in Rome and he's awaiting trial. He doesn't know what the outcome of his trial is. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed or set free. And there are many things you may want to pursue at the beginning of the new year. Um, you know, people set goals, like I said, many good things. But what Paul in this passage is reminding us, and I have it on the top of your notes, is that the single-minded pursuit of Christ must be the most important goal of the Christian life. We must press on, he uses the word press on multiple times, towards the goal of knowing Christ and becoming more like Christ. And as we pick up mid-chapter in verses 12 and 13, the text that we just read, Paul uses the words in, chap in verse 12, he uses the word this and it. He says, not that I have already obtained this, or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Paul is referencing the earlier passage uh, where he talks about knowing Christ and becoming like Christ. So in verse 10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Paul is declaring that knowing Christ is on one hand understanding the person and work of Christ, on the other hand to be about personal transformation into the image of Christ, these make up the singular goal of his life. So Paul is saying the goal of my life is to be like Christ and that is also the reward of my race. Someday I will be like Christ. And you see he uses the word one thing. It is not one of his top ten goals. It is the top goal. He says one thing. As I was studying this text, I, I learned that in the original text the word I do is not there. It does not say one thing I do. It just says one thing. His focus is on one thing. And Paul's purpose and conduct is focused. He's a man of single-minded focus. He has one aim. He has one ambition. Spurgeon observes about this text. He says, this one thing I do, it sounds as if Paul has given up all else and addicted himself to one sole object to be like Jesus Christ. There are many things Paul might have attempted but he says, one thing I do. All other things in his life flow from this one thing. And this goal, uh, Paul says, is not just something he casually follows or aspires to. He uses very strong language here. He says, I press on towards it. And if you do some word study here, the word press on in the Greek is a word diokos. It means to pursue, to chase, to catch after something or someone, to persecute, going after with purpose. And so Paul, who once diokos the church or persecuted the church and pursued the church and believers, is now persecuting or pursuing 
with the same intensity, purpose, and int intentionality, Christ, and making Christ known. So he says, press on with purpose or pursue Christ with all you got. And why does Paul say this, right? The reason Paul continues pursuing Christ is he's the first to admit, church, I have not arrived. And Paul is not a fan of the doctrine of you know, perfectionism. Some believe that you can, in this life, become perfect. But Paul is saying, you know, I have not attained perfection. I have a long way to go. And you know, if, if you and I think we have attained perfection, I just have to ask my wife and kids, and I will get an answer to that, right? It's easy. But here Paul, arguably the greatest Christian to have ever lived, is saying, I have not arrived, so I need to press on, right? And so let me paraphrase, and this is my paraphrase, verses 12 and 13 with this understanding, where, where Paul uses the words this and it. I'm going, to, I'm going to paraphrase. Paul says in verse 12 and 13, not that I have already obtained full knowledge of Christ and achieved perfection, or already am perfect like Christ, but I press on to make Christ-like perfection my own. I do not consider I have made Christ's perfection my own yet. And so you may ask, well, are we not made perfect when God saves us? The answer is yes. Hebrews 10.14 tells us that. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect, past tense, those who are being made holy. So we were already made perfect. Are you not being perfected now? The answer is yes. Will we not be made perfect in the future? The answer is yes. How can the answer be yes to all three questions? Paul is acknowledging that he was justified, as we know, at the point of salvation, declared not guilty legally, declared perfect, and Christ's righteousness was applied to him. One day in the future, he will be made perfect when he will be, we will be glorified. But now he is in the process of being perfected, what we call progressive sanctification. So we have been saved from, from the penalty of sin. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Past tense, one time. One day we will be saved in the future from the presence of sin. Romans 5.9, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved, future tense, by him from the wrath of God. And we are being saved by the gospel from the power of sin, now, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Present continuous reality. So we are already in the what we call the already, but not yet. So we are perfect, we are being perfected, we will be perfectly perfect. This is why Paul says, I press on, because I am still a work in progress, right? So when you look at each other, you, you should see a little work-in-progress sign above, above your heads, right? That's how we need to approach each other. And in contrast, Paul, prior to his conversion, Paul didn't always think this way. He didn't always think he was a work-in-progress. Prior to his conversion, when he was called Saul, although he thought he had arrived. So if you look, we didn't read it, but if you look uh, up in chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, Paul lists all of his personal accomplishments he thought he brought to his standing before God. It was a completely works-based mentality. He thought he was justified by works, and now he knows he's justified by faith. So here we go now. Paul is in prison, awaiting trial, possibly the end of his life. Um, and imagine, put yourselves in, the, in, in Paul's shoes for a minute, right? You have all this religious pedigree and heritage. 
you've had one of, you are one of the few people ever to have had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Christ, the risen Christ. You wrote 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. He planted all these churches. He planted the first church in Europe, the Philippine church. He preached, he started prison ministry, preaching to Roman authorities. But Paul is saying, none of this matters. He says, I have not arrived. I need to press on. So Paul's thinking in life is marked by holy discontent, right? And now you might say, well, I thought Paul says we need to be content. Yes, Paul elsewhere in the New Testament tells us we are to be content in our circumstances and what we have materially, where we are in life, physically what we possess. At the same time, we are to be discontent, not content spiritually with where we are in Christ in terms of wanting to pursue greater knowledge of God, greater knowledge of Christ, and not to be content with the degree of transformation that God has worked in you so far. So we need that discontent. And discontent has led do many good things in life and society. You know, Henry Ford was not content designing a better horse. Um, you know, uh, all of us have phones. Steve Jobs was not content with a phone with tons of buttons. That changed things. Uh, recently, over the Christmas break, uh, my family, we went to the uh, railway museum in Sacramento. It's a, it's a fun museum, if you like, trains. And the story is someone was not content to sit in a wagon across the United States from the East Coast to the West Coast for weeks or sail all around South America to come to the West Coast. Someone was not discontent and they were like, we need to find a better way. So the point is dissatisfaction and discontent about the right things can lead to progress. And that is what Paul is saying here. Paul, in the context of spiritual transformation and his sanctification is saying, I'm not going to be content. I'm not going to be complacent. I have not arrived. There is more to know, more to change, more to give, more to become, more heights to reach, more to learn, new ground to cover. And this is not just a personal testimony and doctrine of Paul's. Paul is teaching what applies to all of us. Paul is saying, no matter how much you know and have studied, have an eagerness to learn and grow because you have not arrived, right? And in fact, in verse 15, he tells us, acknowledging we are a work in progress and have not arrived is a sign of what? He says it's a sign of maturity, right? A mature Christian is one who knows he's not fully mature yet, and we have not attained perfect maturity. So he says, if we are to strip the Christian life down to one thing, the one thing worth pursuing or pressing after is Christ, right? And he's not motivated to press on by his own willpower or his own strength. He does say in verse 12, not getting into the details, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We press on because first, Christ has first pursued us. He continues to pursue us and continues to draw us closer to himself. So in, it's a sense, in a sense, we are not just moving towards his goal. Christ is also drawing us to himself so we can, we can take strength in that. Um, so with that background, uh, Paul also talks about uh, what I'm calling a pattern for pursuing Christ. He gave us the why it's important to pursue Christ, and now he's going to talk about the how. So we are going to look at some principles and strategies for what makes for a successful pursuit. How do we press on in this life, right? Um, and then in order to purposely pursue Christ, which is his 
ultimate goal, he says the one thing, he breaks it down to several things, right? And so I'm going to touch upon six practical actions or aspects of a purposeful pursuit. So the first thing he talks about in verse 13, um, he says, where am I? Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, forgetting lies, what lies behind. So Paul is using a metaphor from in a foot race, from racing. And he says, look, you cannot run and win a race if you keep looking back, right? And he's not saying forget the past and it's uh, the successes. Uh, he, isn't say, he isn't saying don't, he's saying don't let the past, both successes and failures, sin of the past, shortcomings of the past, hold you back and define who you are to the point it slows you down or paralyzes you from moving forward. So he's not saying forget the past. Like if you forget the past and don't learn from it, that's not very smart. He is saying don't let the past paralyze you and dominate your life to the point you are not able to move forward, right? So you all probably know people who constantly live in the past, right? And modern day psychology, what does it do? It tries to take every sin in a person's life back to when you were a child, like, you know, my parents did this, or this is what happened when I was in school, and all of those root causes modern day psychology tries to find in someone's past does not address the, the sin issue, right? Now the past, I must say, certainly influences us and shapes us. We, we can't deny that. But what Paul is saying is, Christian, you are a new cre creation. Don't let the past dominate your life and hold you back. You are a new creation, so move on. And, you know, unfortunately, individuals, people live in the past, families live in the past, and they say this is how we've always done this. Even sometimes churches can live in the past. And when you live in the past, you're not going to make progress into the future. And that's what Paul is telling us. And if you think about it, if anyone had a reason to become complacent and retire, based on successes in life, it was Paul. He did all these wonderful things for Christ. But he's like, no, I'm going to forget that. And if anyone had reasons to feel like a failure and have their sin hold them back, it was Paul, right? Imagine, like, Paul was a religious fanatic at one point when he was called Saul. The, he was committed to persecuting the church. He murdered, got Christians murdered. He was complicit in the stoning of Stephen. Um, and the early church was probably highly suspicious of him when he went after his conversion. And yet he says, you know what, I'm going to forget all of that. Not that he has forgotten it, but I'm not going to let that dominate me. Both successes and failures we need to put behind us and press on. Because the gospel frees us. And, and what he's saying is what matters is what I do for Christ for the rest of my life. And Isaiah 43, 25 says, and I think we all need this reminder, when even our sins of our past dominate our thinking or hold us back, it says, I, even I, God is saying this, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sin no more. Now, God is omniscient. It doesn't mean he, he completely forgets. What it means is God is not holding that sin against us. So why do we do that to ourselves or to each other, right? And that's why we sang the song that we sang, uh, that Rudy sang. Thank you, Rudy. Um, one of the verses says, Lord, forgive us our shame. 
when we can't release the past, when we are quick, quick to take the blame, but we forget we are free at last, right? So Paul is saying, like, let the sins of the past, the failures of the past, even the successes, I need to leave it behind and move forward. So this year, as we start this year, I know we are three weeks into the year, if you want to make progress in your pursuit, let the past go. Both successes and failures, press on. We need to forget and move on, right? So that's the first principle he gives us in our pursuit of Christ. The second thing he says in verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Second, he says we need to strain forward. It means literally to overextend yourself. And if you picture the, a foot race, what do people do at the foot race at the last five yards, the last two seconds of the race? They stretch. They are trying to make that, you know, that last push to stretch. And this is what Paul is talking about. He says, strain forward um, at the finish. Um, and he says, this sort of straining or stretching to the limit is not something you just do at the end of your life. He says, do it habitually throughout your life. And he's calling for it to be a lifelong attitude. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one, receive, only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. You need to stretch. You need to put in the effort if you want to win. So set some stretch goals for yourself, even this year in your walk with God. Number three, he says, um, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the upward, pri of the upward uh, prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The third action, he says, is to fix towards a goal, to run towards a goal. And the word goal, if you study it, comes from the Greek word skopos. And this means, uh, this basically informs our English word for scope, so like microscope or telescope, right? You're fixing on something. Um, and Kent Hughes, he says this, the noun scopos refers to that on which one fixes one's gaze, whether it be a target at which an archer might shoot, metaphorically a goal or marker that controls a person's life, or here, the marker at the conclusion of the race upon which the runner fixes his grace. And you're all familiar with Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It tells us what the goal must be. Like if you fix on a goal, it's important what the goal is, right? You can't just fix on anything. So Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us in this race that we are all running in, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So becoming like Christ is the prize, and Christ himself is the prize, and we are to stay fixed on the goal is what Paul is telling us. So that's the third principle. The fourth principle in verse 16, jumping down here a little bit, he says, um, <clears throat> let those who are mature think this way, and if anything else you think, uh, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have retained, hold true. And the words hold true here, what he's saying is, stay true, make forward progress in a straight line. He's saying live by the same standard that you've always lived. It literally means to walk in a line, march in a line, dance in a line. 
proceed in a row to keep rank and file. So what Paul is saying is, look, you're moving in a straight line, keep doing what you're doing, right? Stay consistent with things that are working in your life as you move towards this goal. <laughs> things that are profitable, keep doing them. Sometimes it's easy to get weary of doing certain things. My wife and I are involved in some things where I'm like, I just want to give up. I don't see any fruit in doing this. Why don't we give up? And she's like, well, we need to keep going. Let's not do it, right? So he's saying here, things that are working, that are keeping you in this straight line towards the scope or the goal, keep at it. Don't give up. Proverbs 4, 25 says this, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So the way to pursue Christ is not to look back like he said, forget the past, fix your eyes on a goal, and continue in the path you already are in. So sometimes, you know, we can, we can overcomplicate our Christian lives, right? And just like fad diets, it's easy to want to add something new, uh, which is fine. But Paul is saying, stick to the fundamentals, the things that are working, keep doing them. You know, being consistent in coming to church, to fellowshipping, reading your Bible, spending time in prayer, all those disciplines, uh, there isn't any magic formula. Stick to what's working that's keeping you in line and keep going, right? You don't need to try new fads. You just need to keep doing what you're doing, right? So that's the fourth principle he gives us, holding firm, staying in a straight line. Um, the, the fifth one he says in, in verse, actually the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, the first, fifth principle he gives us is, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus, thus in the Lord. So Paul is saying that even as you march forward in a straight line, fixed on this goal, forgetting the past, distractions will come, attacks will come. And Paul is addressing in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, um, you know, some of the uh, teachers who were teaching incorrect doctrine in the church, they were enemies of the cross. We're going to look at that in a minute. And he knows that the, the believers in Philippi are going to be distracted. They are, they, are, they are going to deviate from the path they are going on and tempted to follow incorrect teaching. So he's telling them, stand firm, be constant, remain steadfast, be committed to what you believe, stick with your convictions, do not deviate from your beliefs, um, and not wavering or changing one's mind and being swept by the wind is important. And Paul exhorts other churches uh, in other episodes to do the same with the same two words. In 1 Corinthians 16.3, he says, Be on alert, stand firm in faith, act like men, be strong. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ set us free, therefore keep standing firm. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold on to the traditions which you were taught. So over and over, Paul is saying, you need to stand firm. If not, attacks will come. You are going to get distracted. You need to make sure you keep moving the straight line. And then last but not least, in verse 17, he says, imitate those who pursue Christ well, right? He says, you know, be encouraged in your pursuit of Christ by others around you. That's why we need each other, right? Um, not just by anyone, but those who are pursuing the similar goal, right? So as, as most of you know, my family, we moved, like Mario said, to the East Bay. 
now it's almost you know seven months and um, uh, my son Micah is in a new school uh, and it's a Christian school but there are families with very different backgrounds so we are helping him make friends and one thing we keep asking him is hey can you figure out which guys are from maybe a Christian family so we can make friends with their families and you can have some time you know get to get to know them and he always asked should I only make friends with Christian kids from Christian backgrounds and we are like no that's not what we're saying what we're saying is it's important to try to find those families because we are all heading in the same direction and you want to be on this on this in this race pursuing Christ with others who are in a similar path so you can all pull each other together as well so that's what Paul is saying here like he says first imitate me himself and Paul is not being boastful Paul doesn't have like a high view where he's like hey you guys need to imitate me because I've arrived he's saying imitate me because I imitate Christ so just follow my pattern Christ is my example you imitate me you'll be fine he also says imitate others who are rightly pursuing Christ the right way in verse 17 brothers join in imitating me himself and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us so Paul is saying do that and in contrast if you look further in this section he says in verse 18 many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears walk as enemies of the cross so he's saying look there are those of us you need to imitate and follow and there are people out there you need to be careful if you imitate and follow them you're going to be off track and Paul then contrasts those who are pressing on towards Christ's likeness versus those claiming to be Christians so there were sadly some who it looks like maybe professed Christ at some point in their lives but how they live as we are going to see in this passage clearly demonstrated a lack of true conversion and what I want to do next is just show you a quick contrast it's a stark contrast in verses 18 and 21 between what he calls enemies of the cross contrasted with true believers right so he goes through some of these things here so they are contrasted in, se in several ways enemies of the cross the first distinction is their walk they are different enemies of the cross he says their walk their lives and actions are no different from those who deny Christ you can't look at the pattern of their life and tell if they're a believer or not by contrast true believers walk according to the example of the Apostles in Christ they obey Christ they act in the interest of the kingdom of God and the church so you can see the difference the second way they are they are different and you can see the contrast is their identity how they view themselves how they view their standing before God enemies of the cross based on their actions are abusing grace they never or they never understood God's grace right their mistaken view is grace saves us and now I can live any way which I want worldly ways and Paul is like no that's not right true believers on the other hand we realize we are sinners saved by grace we understand our identity in Christ and the fact we are called to a new life and behavior the third way he contrasts them is their response to desires you can see here enemies of the cross what does it say their bellies or physical appetites are what they worship are their gods all of their physical desires drive their worship they taught wrongly that you are free from the penalty of sin and now you are free to live as you want right whereas true be true believers and true followers what are we asked to do we are asked to bring our bodies and our physical appetites 
under the control of the spirit. So it says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I discipline, I discipline my body and keep it under control. The fourth contrast we see here is mindset, right? The mindset is important. How you think is how, what determines how you will act. Enemies of the cross, they have their minds, it says, what does it say? Set on earthly things. They live for the here and now. Their viewpoint is, let's make the best of this kingdom before we worry about the kingdom to come, right? Whereas true, true believers, what does it say? The minds are set on Christ and heaven. We know our citizenship is in heaven. We think and act as citizens of another place. We are what is called resident aliens. We're just passing through, right? We are here, but we are aliens here. We, our citizenship is in heaven. And next he says, glory. What do they glory in? Enemies of the cross, cross glory in their shame. True followers of Christ glory in Christ. They look to bring glory to God and to Christ in all they do. And finally, and it's interesting, he starts with this. He starts with this in verse 19 with their destination. Enemies of the Christ have guaranteed destruction in their future. So the next time you see someone exhibiting these behaviors, um, these characteristics of, of enemies of cross, don't worry, their end is coming, right? Their end is destruction. And he contrasts that with true believers, our destination, we are guaranteed glorification. We are assured a glorified body free from sin and its effect. So this is not our home, right? And uh, at our church, uh, the church we are in now, our pastor shared this quote last Sunday, which I thought is appropriate for, uh, you know, our lives in this world and, and are looking forward to glorification. Um, John Owen, the great Puritan, when he was on his deathbed, he was uh, writing a letter through his uh, secretary. So his secretary wrote, um, to a friend, I am still in the land of the living. And Owen said, stop, change that and say, I am yet in the land of the dying, but I hope to be soon in the land of the living. I am yet in the land of the dying, I am soon to be in the land of the living. We, we sometimes mix that up. So we are all in the land of the dying and we will be, we are guaranteed new glorified bodies in the land of the living. So those were just uh, some ways that Paul is contrasting uh, the enemies of the cross with true believers. And, you know, I've gone over a lot of very practical advice that or practical guidance that Paul is giving uh, and steps that we can take, right? But all of this said, we will all fail in some way to keep all this perfectly this year, right? Whether in big ways or small ways, in this pursuit of this one thing, I'm going to fail, you are probably also going to fail at some point. And this is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. You will fail. We will trip up. And the same gospel that saved us one day is the same gospel we need to apply daily to our lives to keep moving forward in our pursuit of Christ and a life of holiness. So I wanted to end with that note. We are not going to be perfect. So. Uh, just in closing, brothers, this year, like, don't let the successes of last year or your past life make you complacent. Um, you know, we've moved to a new church and we're trying to find a place there and settle in. And, you know, things that my wife and I did here, whether it was Sunday school or serving in missions, 
we can't expect to just go in there and start doing those things, right? So now we may have to start by just putting the chairs away and ushering, and we'll see what happens from there. We cannot look at the past and those successes and have that be like our expectation for the future. And at the same time, we don't let the failures of the past this year, don't let the failures of the past hold you back. Instead, look ahead. Press on with a singular focus is what Paul is saying. Know that you are a work in progress. You and I are work in progress. Keep your eyes on the goal, as Paul says. Hold true to the path you already are on. Stand firm and imitate those who pursue Christ well. Im imitate those who pursue God well. William Carey, I just want to end with a story. William Carey is often called the father of modern missions, as you know. His labors for Christ, you know, he, did, he, he translated the Bible into 40 different languages and dialects, many achievements. Um, on his 70th birthday, uh, William Carey wrote to one of his sons these words. After all of this work of his life spent in missions and translation and all of that, he wrote this to his sons, one of his sons. He said, I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness. Though on a review of my life, I find much, very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted his cause, nor sought his glory and honor as I ought. Notwithstanding all this, I am spared till now, and I am still retained in his work. And I trust I am receiving, I am received into, into the divine favor through him. So Kerry, at the end of his life, reflected and said, I need to press on. And um, I'm, I'm studying this uh, book, Disciplines of Grace, by Jerry Bridges in a, in a group. And in this book, Jerry Bridges says this, reflecting on what, what uh, William Carey said. How then could a man of such remarkable faith in God, who had accomplished so much for God, lament towards the end of his life his own sinfulness and shortcomings? Why would Carey not rather reflect with gratitude and praise on what God had done through him? Translation, all of this work in the mission field. Why was Carey's attitude, was Carey's attitude due to an unhealthy low self-esteem? Or did it reflect a healthy realism that is characteristic of a godly, mature Christian? Should Carrie's at attitude be an example for us to follow? Or should we write it off as an unfortunate bit of introspection that comes with old age? These are not just theoretical questions, because Carrie's attitude addresses two significant needs among committed believers. One, the need for humble realization of our own sinfulness and the need for grateful acceptance of God's grace. So the point that Bridges is making here is that a mature Christian, whether it's the Apostle Paul, or if it's someone like William Carey, uh, we always have a need for humble and realistic realization of our own sinfulness and shortcomings, and we also need to be thankful for God's acceptance of grace. Both Paul and William Carey admit they have not arrived in spite of all they did. And if we are mature and we ought to think in the same way, like Paul said, 
So as we close, may the pursuit of this one thing and the one person be the goal and the focus uh, of our year ahead. So let me pray and then we can, we can wrap up. <clears throat> Father God, we just uh, thank you for your word again. We just thank you for uh, how it speaks to us in our uh, sin and our need for a savior daily. And we just thank you, Lord, for uh, the encouragement it provides us and the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for your grace and mercy. And uh, we just thank you for this reminder, even from this passage we looked at briefly today, that none of us have arrived. Lord, we are all a work in progress. Our standing and our identity in Christ is secure. We are perfect in your eyes. When you look at us, you see us clothed in the perfection of Christ. And one day, Lord, we look forward to be free from this body of sin and our glorification. But in this time, Lord, we are in this process of being changed day by day into the image of your Son. And we, we thank you for that. We thank you for the work that you are doing in us. And I pray that even this year, as we look at the rest of this year before us, we don't know what it brings. But I pray that we will all find our focus in the one thing, to press on towards Christ-likeness. Uh, perhaps even today we need to find that one thing we need to forget, whether it's a sin and failure or even our successes from the past. Uh, maybe we need to think about the one thing we change and how we have to strain forward and give it our full effort. Uh, maybe remind us about the one thing we need, we need to do to hold on, to hold true, to stay consistent. And pray, Lord, that we will also look for those around us, surround us with people who are pursuing the same one thing, and that we can imitate them. Pray that we can, each of us, reflect on how we can be examples to others who are in the same pursuit of Christ. And Lord, above us, Lord, we, uh, we, uh, we, we know we will <coughs> fail, we will sin even this year, but we pray that we will come back to the cross Ask for the forgiveness, the same grace that saved us, Lord, uh, that same grace we need to apply to our lives and to our conscience day, day by day and move on in this, in this race that you have set before us. So we just thank you for this time again. Pray that you will use these words, use your word to transform us even today and transform our thinking in our lives. And we just thank you again for this time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.